death has lost its grip on me. Why is that? Because our Father has made His Son, Jesus, a priest forever, Hebrews says. Chapter 7. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they prevented by death from continuing an office. But He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, because of this, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, for you. For it was indeed fitting that he should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is why we say living hope and why we celebrate without any thought about the lies that came in our head through the week that tried to make this not true about us. If we are God's people, you are saved to the uttermost. And so we can come here in freedom regardless of the mistakes and the sins that plague our past and raise our hands in joy and praise because our living hope has given us that which we do not deserve and he will hold that and keep that forever on behalf of us. Hebrews chapter 4 is the same book that says because of this also we can go boldly to the throne boldly and ask for help and grace and mercy in our time of need and we find ourselves always in that time so let's bow the knee now and go to our God and ask for help Heavenly Father we may not fully realize um, the wonder of us as sinners being being able to step into the holy of holies the very fact that our bodies have been made the temple to have sanctified us though our sins be many because of Jesus lack of sin taking on what we deserve we shall be white as snow God, thank you for how you have loved us despite anything that we've done to deserve that and how you gave up your only son for us. I pray now that as we open up the book of 1 Peter, that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive truth. Holy Spirit, you would teach us, you would give us understanding, and that God, you would continue to grow us and turn us into Jesus here on earth as we await that blessed day for his glory to come. We pray this all in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Kids, we love you. Have a great time at Children's Church. Summit Kids, enjoy it. Open your hearts and minds to learn what God has for you. And everyone else, take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. You'll see on the screen here our next series. Identity Matters. And you can say that two ways. You can say identity matters, or you can say, I guess we're going to talk about identity matters, the matters that pertain to identity. The whole book of 1 Peter is this collection of reminding Christians who they are and why that's so important in a world that's trying to tell them they are something else. Identity matters. How much does it matter? How much does knowing who you are matter? Well, let's talk about that. Whoever you think you are will affect 100% how you live. Whoever you genuinely believe that you are as a person, your identity will determine how you act and conduct yourself here on planet Earth. Consequently, if you do not know who you are, your life will reflect that chaos Our world, even the world that does not know God, that does not 
adhere to the truth of God, who does not know, who do not know that they were made in his image, even our world recognizes how important identity is. Such words in our world have been constructed in our modern times, uh, existentialism and nihilism, that both flow out of identity. The world recognizing when people do not know who they are, life is existential. There's no point to it, which leads to nihilism. There's no point of me doing anything or living. Nothing I do makes a difference. These words have been used to, to, to... to show an observation that we recognize when people do not know who they are, they don't have a sense of self, it's problematic. Which is interesting. Because if, as the world subscribes, we are just a random existence that happens to be here because of random chances and we come from stardust, when you live your life believing you are only stardust, it absolutely affects your life in a negative way. That's because we are not just made from stardust. That's because we are made in the image of God. We have been separated from our God. We have lost our identity. And life is the experience of living in that. Everyone in the world says something's wrong with the world. There is suffering. There is chaos. Something is wrong. And everyone is trying to figure out who they are. The identity war is alive and well. It makes perfect sense to me. People struggling even with their gender struggling to know who they are because inside of them, deep inside of them, trying to figure out who am I? Something's missing. Maybe, potentially, it must be that I was born the wrong gender. And so you have people believing who they are here and it absolutely affecting their life. Knowing who we genuinely, actually are is what matters. And we need to be the people that help the world to see that what you're looking for is not found in your gender. It's not found in your sexuality. It's not found in your money or your job or your career. What you're looking for and the gaping hole of identity that is missing is you being connected to the very God who made you in his image. So we come to the book of 1 Peter. I love 1 Peter. You've probably heard us joke uh, as staff, as pastors, as you know, Jasper loves First Peter. He brings it up all the time. It's, and someone said this morning, we're no longer going to be talking about First Peter. We're going to be looking in First Peter. I'm very excited. I love this book. I'll tell you why. It's because when you read like the writings of Paul, you feel like Paul understands God on a deep level and you gotta, you've, you've got to go deep to understand these theological truths. When you come to Peter, he has the theology, he has the doctrine, but I feel like when I'm reading Peter's writings, I feel like he understands me. And he's saying exactly what I need to hear for life here and now. I find myself going to 1 Peter all the time for my, for my personal study just because I need to be reminded of the words here. Because too often our sense of self and who we are gets forgotten. You know, if I woke up every day and believed, believed about myself that I could not walk, I absolutely 100% believed that I was paralyzed from the waist down. Would that affect my life? Well, you, if, you were, if, you, if you're inquisitive, you'd be like, well, are you? are you? Are you paralyzed from the waist down? Well, at this point, it doesn't matter because I genuinely believe it, so I'm probably never going to move my legs because I don't think they can move. Let's, let's take it even, uh, maybe an even crazier step, piggybacking off a step. What if I believe that if my right foot, maybe I could walk, but if I believed every time my right foot hit the ground, someone I loved would die, would that affect the way I live? Let me see by you shaking your head yes or no. Do you think that would affect the way that I genuinely believe that if my right foot touched the ground, someone I loved would die? Now that's a, that's a, a foolish belief. Absolutely not true But if I believe it, you're going to see this guy hopping around on his left leg all the time, aren't you? And when my right foot hits the ground, then all of a sudden I've got a problem. Romans chapter 12 says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. God understands that he is, that we need truth to invade our soul. We need truth to invade our mind because what we're walking on planet earth, believing and thinking about our lies constantly. So God shows up, the word shows up, made manifest to us and shows us what truth is. And now he's trying to use this to renew our minds because if our thinking and what we believe changes, 
then our life will change. You do what you do because you believe what you believe. You are what you think. So let's go to 1 Peter and let's talk about some identity matters, shall we? Let me give you some info on 1 Peter. Written by Peter. We're going to talk a little bit about him uh, here in a second. You're going to see some uh, facts here up on the screen, some information. Peter is the author. Simon Peter, uh, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. And we'll talk a little bit about him a little bit later. This is the disciple who walked with Jesus, Peter. Date. This book was written it's believed around 64 AD. This is extremely significant because what is on the horizon is this evil man named Nero who is about to bring a persecution upon Christians that is extreme. It it is the quintessential persecution that we fear of, of utter destruction and killing and hatred of Christians who are living in the land. It is on the horizon, let's just say. So Peter's book is gonna be very relevant to helping the Christians in Rome at this time uh, deal with the suffering they're currently experiencing, but also prepare for the persecution that is to come. Location, Peter doesn't actually say Rome. Do you know what Peter says in his book? He says Babylon, If you know anything about Babylon in scriptures, Babylon represents the evil world that God's people have to live in. Babylon is the evil city. So is Peter actually writing from Babylon, the ancient city, hundreds of years before he wrote this? Or is he using the word Babylon as a symbol of the place he's living? Yes, he's writing in Rome to Christians on the outskirts of Rome. And the location of these Christians, as we're going to see in verse 1, is in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which would be modern Turkey as we know it today. So you're looking at a map. You're way down bottom right part of ancient Rome. He refers to Rome as Babylon, not to be thought of as a great place to live as a Christian. And then purpose. Let me give you the purpose. Why did he write this letter? And I've tried to, as best I could, put it into a simple sentence. It says this. The purpose is to encourage suffering Christians by reminding them who they are and by exhorting them to live in accordance with those identities. I think extremely relevant as the world we find living around us today is only growing more and more and more unaware of who they are. You're feeling more and more of the effects of not knowing who they are, more separated from God, more depression, more problems, more angst, more volatility among people. Who are going to be the people living amongst the people in darkness that are gonna shine the light? It's gonna be you and I. There's no one else to look to. There's no one else for us to look to a people group in the world other than the example of Jesus Christ himself who gives us our proper identity and who leaves us here on earth as we're going to see to shine light and help other people see who they really are and who God can make them. Children of God. The identity we're gonna see today is this interesting one. You're going to see in verse 1, him call us elect exiles. What is this? Well, look here on the screen. Elect exiles. It's the strange sounding identity in verse 1 that seems sad at first, but gets increasingly more awesome and beautiful as you read and dive deeper into understanding what this actually means, why this is, how it is, and for what it is in verse 2. Or, in other words, who I am as a Christian living on planet earth. Peter wastes no time speaking to these Christians about who they are and why it is so important that they view themselves this way as an elect exile. Maybe your version says this, a chosen sojourner, an elect exile or a chosen sojourner. So this is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about identity. We're going to, we're going to focus in on this word elect exile. And, and Peter is going to bring in just the first two verses in his greeting, some of the most beautifully deep truths 
about you as a believer in Jesus Christ that goes even deeper into eternity than you could ever think just thinking about it yourself. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Peter, giving the inspiration of Scripture some words that you may desperately need as you feel the world pressing in around you. So let me, let me bring it home then as we get into this. It's like Peter writing to us, where are you at right now living on planet Earth? What does it feel like? What are you struggling with? Are you aware of the, the pressure of those who do not understand you, who are not like you, and their thoughts about you, and you can feel a, an ever-growing persecution closing in on us as Christians here in America. Our time is coming. And I think more so than ever in its time, we are like the people that Peter are writing to, those who are dispersed. It's like the persecutions on the horizon. God knows it. And, and God's church must be a church that's ready, bear with me, to suffer for him if need be. That's why he said it's the strange sounding identity that sounds sad at first, but it's going to get awesome. All right, so you guys ready? Let's jump into it. First Peter, verse one, Peter introduces himself. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the fisherman here. We're talking about the guy who was named Simon. Peter was not his name. His name is Simon. And it's interesting. I think if you were to say Simon, people would be like, who are you talking about? But if I said Peter, all of us knows who we're talking about. Very interesting because Jesus tells Peter at one point in his ministry, you are no longer going to be known as Simon, but you'll be known as Peter. And here we are thousands of years later. He is known as Peter more so than Simon. So he's introducing himself as the identity that Jesus gave him many years before this. Peter as an older man, reflecting on still using the same title and name that Jesus himself gave him. Peter, and he says this, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Simply that word apostle means messenger. More specifically, the duty of an apostle is to speak on behalf of. Peter is an apostle. He's one of, and here's a key thing, the apostles. We may have apostles today in the sense of the word messenger, people who go out to speak on the behalf of the Lord, and that way we're all apostles, but there are only a select few men who get the title of an apostle that Peter's talking about here. The type of apostle who brought the teachings of Jesus in an authoritative way and who began the church as we know it. And you read the book of Acts, you see that the church was devoted to continuing in fellowship and prayer and the doctrine or the teachings of the apostles. So you have Peter here calling himself an apostle of who? Christ Jesus. Turn over to chapter five with me. I want to see you another identity that Peter refers to himself as. First Peter chapter five. At the very end of the book, he's going to address the pastors, the elders or the shepherds of these churches that he writes to. Peter says this, so I exhort the elders among you. And he says about himself as a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. This Peter we're talking about was a witness to the sufferings of Jesus. Eyewitness with his eyes got to be with and see and touch the preeminent one of the universe. The spiritual realm and the physical realm. The holy, almighty, ancient of days, son of man. Peter got to witness and see him. And he's writing as a witness, talking to the fellow elders, as a fellow elder, he says this, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter's anticipating something is coming, the glory's coming, I get to partake in it, so do you. Then he says this, shepherd the flock of God. 
shepherd the flock of God that is among you. We're talking about the same Peter, whom from what we know, one of his last interactions with Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus, was exhorted by Jesus to shepherd the flock. Jesus, do you love me? I mean, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? You know all things. Feed my sheep. If you go and look at the life of Peter, you will see Jesus interacting with him by saying, in Caesarea Philippi, amongst all types of pagan things and a false God worship, uh, uh, visual things around them to the disciples, who do people say that I am? Hey, disciples, you get, you're out in the world. You know what people think of me. And they all give wrong answers, various answers that aren't really right. Who do you say I am? And Peter is the one who speaks up. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, Peter, the Holy Spirit revealed this to you. You did not. And then Jesus has an interesting conversation with Peter about what he would be. You will be Petros, little rock, pebble. And he says, upon this foundation, not little pebble, Peter, but upon the foundation of Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you see Peter always listed first, Peter being talked about more in all of the gospels, Peter being the focus of this leader that Jesus would would use to be the leader amongst the disciples and, and even one of the great leaders of the church to shepherd the flock of God. And then you see the Holy Spirit come upon Peter and Peter used in mighty ways. And the scripture is very clear to help us understand that Peter's a nobody. Peter's a nobody. He's a poor fisherman who, who isn't articulate. Even people today, critics today be like, there's no way Peter wrote First Peter because it's written too well and it should sound dumber because he's a dumb guy. No, Jesus God himself likes to choose the weak things of the world to put to shame the wise things. And so Peter gets chosen because he's one of us. So when I read 1 Peter, I read someone who understands me. I love this book. And I'm very thankful for the men of the past who have gone before us, who've ended up laying down their lives for the sake of the gospel. If you go on, Peter was crucified upside down not many years after writing this. And he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the way that my Lord was. And he ultimately died in the same way that his Savior did. And he showed himself as not a hypocrite to the things that he's going to write here to people. But he lived it out and proved it. And the whole goal is for this letter then to reach even us as a church to carry on that same mission. So he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to who? To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So immediately right off the bat, he's getting to identity. He's showing his identity and then he addresses the people. I want you and I'm calling you to think of yourself this way. This is how I think of you. This is how you should think of yourself here on planet earth. If you call yourself a Christian, you follow Jesus Christ, you've confessed him, you've been baptized and you say, I'm a part of his church. You are then an elect exiles. That word elect means chosen. That word exile means a a sojourner or a, a pilgrim. Or more specifically, you should be going to Old Testament thoughts. You are not in your home. You've been cast out of your home and you live in a strange foreign land. You are not in your home land. All of us Maybe, maybe I'm going to make an assumption, but let's assume that this, this feels like home. You know? Let's just assume America feels like home, Michigan feels like home, and then wherever we are here in West Michigan, all of us, when we think of home, it feels like that. Now, what does it feel like to be away from home for a certain amount of time where you start longing for home? You start wanting to be at home. That's an exile. You're exiled. You're not in your home. And so he's telling us as believers, as our identity, you need to see yourself and know that you are one chosen, but you are also an exile here on planet earth. Let me, let me help you see where he, he's really going to, he's introducing the identity to carry through the rest of the book and the implications of that identity and the different areas of our life. 
Look, uh, if you would, at, uh, at chapter, verse 17 of chapter uh, 1. Look what he says. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according, uh, according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Then if you would drop down to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And then turn over to verse, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And then I, wanna, I want us to park here, and here's why. When Peter says, you, I'm writing to those who are elect exiles, we have to be good students of the word because is that how we should look at ourselves? Is Peter then by extension talking to all Christians in the world all over who are dispersed? Or is he simply talking to Jewish Christians who are no longer in Israel? That's kind of the thought here. How do we know he's including Gentiles in this And then chapter four here in verse three is a good indication that this is talking about all Christians. Chapter four, verse three, he says this, for the time, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. If he were talking only to Israelites, they wouldn't have had this experience in the past. Gentiles would not be surprised that Jews aren't joining them in this flood of debauchery. It is the people outside of, it's the, it's the pagans in the world who are Gentiles who live this way. And Peter's already not even referring to them as Gentiles. You're gonna see him absolutely speak to them as the people of God because he doesn't want them to to think of themselves as their identity as Gentiles or people outside of the people of God because that affects how they're gonna live. And by extension, here we are today. How do you think of yourself? Who are you? Do you see yourself as an elect exile? Does earth feel more like home? The book of Hebrews, this is reiterated. In the book of Hebrews, we are also told that we are strangers and exiles on earth. All Christians everywhere should see time on planet earth, see themselves in this identity, an exile. But the good news is coming in through this word, elect. I am an elect exile is what we should be saying. But it's gonna go even a little bit deeper Naturally, I ask, why am I an exile? Why? Because of what? Why? Why is it this way? You know, being chosen by God sounds extremely intimate and great, but when you say that word exile, you're saying that's part of the choosing of God, that I have to be here on earth, I have to suffer, and I gotta wait till I can be home where I long to be? Why does it have to be this way? This is what he's gonna get into. So let's dive in now rich theological truths in verse two. I am an elect exile. Why am I, am I an elect exile? Verse two says this, according to, you are this because of this. You are an elect exile according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The only other time this word foreknowledge is used in verse P, in First Peter is chapter uh, verse twenty of chapter one, when referring to Jesus who was foreknown, Jesus Himself was foreknown and then made manifest to us. And here we go right off the bat in our modern day churches and Christianity, a word pops up that starts many debates, controversies among believers, which is sad because when this was written and when the, the sovereign election of God and the choice of God and the work of God on your life and eternity past is ever mentioned in scripture, it is never meant to cause a debate. It is never meant to make us wonder who sits on the right side of, of, of wondering what this actually means. It's always written to try to encourage you and help you to see just how much God loves you and how special and intimate you are to him and, and, and how not random 
your relationship with him is. According to the foreknowledge of God, you are an elect exile because in thousands and millions and billions of years in the past, all in eternity past, God knew you before you were even born. And that word knew does not mean he just had a knowledge of you. That word know in the scripture is always used in intimate relationship. Jesus, knowing his time is about to depart, he prays to God and he says, restore to me the joy that we had in the beginning. He knowing that his earthly life of 30 something years on planet earth is coming to end and he's looking forward to being back connected with his God in that relationship, his father in that relationship he had with him in eternity past. Here's what's interesting. You had a relationship with God. If you are a Christian, you are saved, you follow Jesus, you love God. First Corinthians eight says, if anyone loves God, he has been known by God. You are just now becoming aware of the relationship, but he's had it with you forever. Isn't this beautiful? And not just a knowing, an intimate relationship with you. He loves you. He has known you. You aren't just some random happening in the universe. You have a purposeful plan and God knew you. Jeremiah, the prophet, understood and it's told that before I was born, you knew me. You see, when you come to understand your identity in Christ, the sanctity of life skyrockets. You begin to see every life as precious. You begin to understand that everyone walking the face of the planet of the earth made in the image of God are not just some random specks of stardust that have to just live their life, eat, drink, and be merry for one day they die. You you come to know Jesus and realize there's more to life than what the world who doesn't have a clue about who they are trying to tell you who you are. You have the God who created everything trying to tell you who you are and who you could be. And if you are, then you need to live in that identity. You are an elect exile according to the foreknowledge of God. Why am I this way? Because God chose it. This is his plan. It's his good pleasure. How is this possible then is the next question. You know, the the heavenly father in his good plan and in his good work beforehand knew you intimately. What are the implications of that? That means your life, nothing about your life is random, even the hard parts. And that's what the book's gonna get into. Later, Peter's gonna say, so don't think something strange is happening to you when the fiery trial comes against you to test you. When life hurts, doesn't mean that you're, you don't belong to God. No, you are an elect exile, you should expect living in a foreign land, not at home, to not be comfortable. How is this true though? He says this, according to the foreknowledge of God, comma, next prepositional phrase, in the sanctification of the spirit. The reason I put how, I put these words on the screen is to help you, help us see what he's talking about here. You are this because of God's great choice. And this is even possible in your life because of the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in your life. In the sanctification of the Spirit. You go to the Old Testament, you go to the book of Micah, you find that God reveals that the victory doesn't come by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. The God himself moving in and through his people to do something about your identity that you could never do in physical or mental exertion. It is impossible for dead things to come to life. There needs to be a miraculous ability at work to actually turn someone in from one identity into another. It doesn't just happen because we want it to happen. It doesn't happen because we try really hard. It doesn't happen just because we say it happened or we want it to be the case. Who am I, the scripture says. I am dead in my trespasses and sin. I am a people who's not a people. Peter's gonna say, once you were not a people, I can't just make that status change because I want it to. 
I need someone who has the ability, someone who's powerful, who can come and change this dead, broken man who was separated from God, who was not sanctified and set apart, who's a part of darkness. I need someone to draw me out of that darkness and place me into the marvelous light. And who does that? It is the person, the God, Holy Spirit. In other words, I am an elect exile because God wanted me to be that, because I was that in eternity past. And how has that happened? In what realm is that happening? And it's happening totally engulfed in the realm of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, John baptized with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Spirit is accredited to doing something that at the moment you believed, the Spirit quickened you made you alive from dead to life the quickening of the holy and then lives in you as a seal and has sealed you as a guarantee that if you have the spirit in you you are guaranteed that what you're waiting for will be given to you and peter's going to go on to to really invest in that thought The only way you've been able to become the people of God is through the power of God in your life. In the sanctification of the Spirit, how am I this elect exile? Which we should be excited about. Bittersweet, right? Because it makes us realize that planet Earth is uncomfortable. This is not our home. Philippians chapter three, verse 20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. Do you believe that? Would you say that that you have cognitively and consciously lived every day of your life with the actual effort to fight against the 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 natural belief that this is home where I am? And said, No, this is not home. Heaven is home and I'm not there. Man, this stinks. First second Corinthians five, Paul says that we groan in this tent. So when we start getting too comfortable on planet Earth, when we, we actually fear leaving planet Earth more than we long for leaving it, that's a problem. God's people have a time during their exile, which should make you think about the Israelites who lost their home and were brought into slavery and they had to live for 70 years in Babylon. And God said, Make your houses, have kids, live there amongst these evil, evil people. It's a symbol. It's something that happened in the past that God did with Israel that's supposed to be a a symbolic representation of every single Jesus-following person that now, okay, since the work of the Holy Spirit has made you this new person, guess what? You're going to stand out. You've been turned into Jesus. No longer do you go with the flow No longer are you just in the crowd. Now you're going to stand out and it's going to hurt. If they hated you, they will hate. If they hated me, they will hate you, Jesus said. I'm turning you into Jesus here on earth. Your identity is an elect exile, but not just on paper in experience as well. Because you're going to feel the groanings of the flesh of being here on earth that doesn't satisfy like it used to. Because you know the truth. And you see sin all around you. You see the brokenness all around you, longing for it to be fixed. And you're going to experience being an exile. You're going to experience what it's like to be a foreigner. Now you're a strange person. He's going to go on to say you're strangers. You're aliens even is a word that he used. You're aliens on planet earth. You're, you're not going to go with the flow. And if you, if, you, if you feel more comfortable with the world, if you feel more comfortable with people who do not know God than you do with your brothers and sisters, that's not a good sign. How is this possible? It is through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. That word sanctification means to be set apart. God is holy. You are different now. And this isn't talking about the sanctifying progressive work in your life. He's talking about the actual conversion experience. God has done this for you. This has happened. So so maybe we say this. Okay, I am an elect exile. That's hard to say. I am an elect exile, chosen people, sojourner. I know why, because God wanted me to be. I know how, because of the sanctifying work of the spirit. But here's the next one. For what? For what purpose? Oh, he doesn't leave us in the dark. For what purpose? Look what he says here. 
for the obedience to Jesus Christ. And secondly, this, and for the sprinkling with his blood. For this purpose, God has chosen you and the spirit has worked in your life. And now you are on planet earth, not at home. You are a chosen people exiled from home. And the purpose for your time here, twofold he gives for the obedience to Jesus Christ. You know, when I wrote this on my board, working with the guys, I actually went up to the board and I put a line through for the obedience to Jesus Christ. Just lined it out because this is what we do in our hearts. We want the gospel to be something that we get freely and that it just happens and it works in our life and we don't want to have to do anything. And I believe rightly so because we understand that salvation comes by faith alone apart from works. And, but I see a trend, especially in modern churches today, where we're kind of like the legalistic uh, police. Rightfully so, because we don't want to be Pharisees. Rightfully so, but the pendulum has swung so far that anything we see in Scripture that has to do with obedience or good works, we immediately like re- repel against Uh, uh, and then we try to find well what does that mean it can't mean surely it means something for the obedience to Jesus Christ obedience that's a bad word no it is not obedience has never been a bad word the bad word is when you must be obedient to be saved to the law you must be obedient to the law in order to be saved evil don't let anybody convince you of that that's what the Judaizers tried to do to the early Christians you are saved by grace through faith It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. But you were saved unconditionally for what? For the spirit to indwell you, to sanctify you, set you apart. And now you have the obedient, now you have the ability through the Holy Spirit to actually obey the gospel of Christ. Paul says to the Romans that his goal was to bring about obedience to Jesus Christ, the obedience of the gospel. The first step of obedience is to hear and believe in Jesus. When the people ask Jesus, what is the works we should be doing, the obedience we should be doing, Jesus said, here's the work from heaven that you must be doing. Believe on the one whom he sent. Faith. But then Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about what his culture is like, which means, which means if I am an elect exile, that means my life is being transformed into the life of Jesus. That means I no longer hate my enemies. I love my enemies and I pray for them. I don't revile when they revile me, but I, I pray for them. I don't curse and I do good to them. And I love, love, love those who hate me. Before Jesus, I didn't do that. Obedience to Jesus means I... Consider others more important than myself. Obedience to Jesus, that means as a husband, I lay down my life for my wife and I see her as Christ sees the church and I treat her like my own body. Obedience to Jesus now means that as a wife, I willingly submit to my husband as if he were Jesus himself. And I'm doing this for him. In the obedience of Jesus, because I follow him and he's sanctifying my life. That means now my, my, my lips, my thoughts, and my actions are being conformed to who Jesus is. And actually, we're told that in Ephesians, that we were created in Christ Jesus. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That the goal of our life is to be conformed. It's a, con- a continual becoming conformed to the image of Jesus because my identity now is Jesus Christ. Paul says, for me to de- live is Christ. That's my whole identity. To die is gain because I get to go home. Are you living for the obedience to Jesus? That you no longer freely look at women with lust, but you're mentally fighting against your old ways as a Gentile, someone who did not know God. That, that you're no longer just, just in gossip talking about people all the time as if you have great reasons to talk about their business and get in their business, but you're, you're actually trying to tailor your mouth and you're, you're, you're getting it tame so that this tongue of yours doesn't start a fire in the people around you. None of this stuff makes you saved. But it's the stuff that we were saved for because the people in darkness need an example of someone who has been changed, who's the light, 
you are saved for the obedience to Jesus Christ because he gets all the glory. I mean, imagine, this is kind of a hard, put yourself in the position of God the Father who slaughters his only son to accomplish something. And when that thing that he's trying to accomplish in your life is being rebelled against, how infuriating that is to a holy God who loves unconditionally, full of mercy, who gives you time after time to repent, to repent, to repent. Then to stand before him one day and now he's thinking about how the blood of his son was trampled underfoot over this life that presumed and neglected all of the mercy and the grace that his son was slaughtered in a, in a horribly suffering way and that was totally thrown in the garbage because this person wanted to do what they felt like doing because what they wanted to do was more worthy than what God wanted for the obedience to Jesus Christ but here's here's where the gospel is wonderful it doesn't end there if we just stopped on for the obedience to Jesus Christ our identity would suffer because every single day what do we experience I struggle with being obedient to Jesus I'm still in this flesh and I sin and I mess up all the time And if the only thought you had was, I must obey or else, then you would give up on it because you never fully obey. Even Paul said, I hadn't arrived yet. You're gonna struggle in this body of death until he gives you a new body. So what do we need? What else has he saved us for that keeps us from getting um, overwhelmed and giving up on this purpose of obedience and conformity to the image of Christ? What else has he saved us for? For the sprinkling with his blood. I don't think we understand how beautiful this is for the people Peter's writing to. Peter, the Jewish apostle of Jesus, writing to Gentiles who their whole life have heard that they're dogs, they're outsiders, they are not the people of God, and for, G- for Peter to use nothing but Jewish, Jewish identity to say, you are, you are, you are now one of these people, the the children of God, and guess what you have? The only way any of this is possible, he has saved you for this, for the cleansing and the forgiveness of sins. And that is right now and continuing forever, which means you never give up on being obedient to him because you're never lost. You pick yourself back up in the forgiveness and the glory and the mercy and the grace of God, and you continue on knowing that 70 times seven, he will forgive you. You never give up because hope is never lost. And in your life, if you feel like hope is lost, it's probably because you've lost your identity. You've forgotten who you are and why you were saved and how you were saved and what you were saved for. The purpose of your salvation is so you can be cleansed and forgiven forever. The sprinkling of his blood, then you go back to the book of Exodus and back to Leviticus where the sprinkling happens and it's always the symbol of cleansing and covenant. Stones were laid up in the book of Exodus and all of the blood was thrown on the stones as a covenant reminder to the people that God had made a covenant with you and he sprinkled it on the people, his blood, a covenant of blood and blood representing cleansing And when the people think about God, his covenants are perfect and he keeps them and he never annuls them. And then you think about sprinkling elsewhere in scripture, the sprinkling of a leper, that when the blood was sprinkled on someone who had leprosy, the disease, they were declared clean. Come to the book of Hebrews and we find the, the sprinkling of the blood for a guilty conscience. A reminder that the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus has not only cleansed you, but it should cleanse your conscience, your guilty conscience as well. So that means when you're thinking about the horrible things that you've done and you begin to hear the the identity proclamations of the enemy that you are a failure, you will never have victory over this. God is done with you this time. It's over The blood of Jesus has sprinkled you. You've been saved for that so you don't even have to have a guilty conscience because that's not even appropriate because you have been cleansed forever. I am an elect exile according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the spirit and for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. And so let's end it with his greeting. Peter says this, colon, what, a, what an introduction, Peter. 
May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Next week, we're gonna get into these, these next uh, seven verses. But here's how I wanna conclude today. Notice that Peter has an opportunity. I'm gonna multiply something to your situation and I don't multiply your circumstance to change. I don't multiply money to you. I don't multiply a better career. I don't multiply this or this or this. I multiply to you through his intercession on behalf of the people and by extension to us, the things we actually need. Grace and peace. As an exile on planet earth with these two things, we will be satisfied. The grace of God, which means the very thing that we need to keep going. The thing that we can't muster up within ourselves. The grace, the the extended favor of God in our life. And then peace. There's a lot of reasons to not have peace on planet earth, but God is trying to give his people here and now peace during the chaos. And it is possible. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. So in your own life, as we close out today, getting ready for next week, what would you rather have as an elect exile? Would you rather to have the impossible, which is your circumstance to change exactly how you want to all the time? Or would you rather God give you the type of heart, the type of spirit that's able to endure with peace through any circumstance in life? This is what God's trying to give you. And so the rest of the book is going to help us with that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have brought us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And would you lift our spirits here and now that within us would not be a lie. And if it is a lie, that you would convict the person who is not a child of God that, that in, a, in a gentle rebuke that leads them to fall on their knees and ask for forgiveness, you would convict them that they are not a child of God to the point where they would repent. And for those who are your children here, who are elect exiles, you would encourage them once again that nothing can separate them from you and that you will bring to work the very thing that you've began in them. They will experience it when when Christ's glory is revealed. Thank you, God, for your love and your mercy. Amen.